0: Hello, and welcome to episode two of the Center Trail Podcast. I'm John Harney.
1: And I'm Tara Strauch.
0: It is a holiday weekend in the United States.
1: For everybody except us. For everybody except us. <laughs> well, and-, and all of our other colleagues at private universities and colleges. So it is Labor Day weekend, uh, the unofficial end of summer. Sorry, guys. Uh, and I'm <laughs> going to have a blog post that today, the day that the podcast comes out That's on right. Monday, uh, September 4th. About the history of Labor Day. Labor Day is kind of an interesting one, and I'll just kind of spoiler alert it for you really quick. Most nations celebrate International Workers' Day on, in May, on May 1st, May Day. We don't do that. Canada doesn't do that. A few other countries also have Labor Days at different points in time. And basically, it's because America, at the time, in the late late 19th century, we didn't want the communists to win.
0: That's kind of what I assumed it was, actually. <laughs> So are the Canadians also rabid haters of communism or?
1: They were then. I'm not really Uh, sure how Canadians feel about communism now.
0: It is tricky because China, for example, makes a big deal on International Workers Day, as in the People's Republic of China, the communist state, or at least the nominally communist state. I mean, there is something to be said for we want to celebrate this notion of workers, but we don't like being in line with Marxists across the planet. I mean, I, I can see that.
1: Yeah, and it's really interesting. Uh, It looked like for a long time, America was going to celebrate International Workers Day. Uh, And then we had kind of a series of protests and some violence around trades and trade unions. And basically, the decision was that America would have a Labor Day, that it would become, uh, it eventually becomes a national holiday, but that it was very specifically going to be a tamer version of a labor holiday Hmm. than what some places get
0: fascinating oh so when was that decision made exactly then or roughly
1: um so it starts becoming a state holiday with oregon um again in the, the late 19th century and it becomes hmm. a federal holiday at the turn of the 20th century um after about 30 or so states had joined
0: fascinating and when does the wear white before or after rule come in i don't know what that rule is because i'm not very fashionable <laughs> You cannot wear white after, or you have to? You are to. not
1: supposed to wear white afterwards. So I'm wearing this amazing uh, white jacket that's totally a winter blazer. I'll keep wearing it. Those rules don't
0: matter anymore. <laughs> I'll put away my cream suits, my, uh, my Graham Green role-playing suits.
1: <laughs> when I was a student at the University of South Carolina, I had to learn all about seersucker I don't know uh, if you at UT Austin ever, ever encountered seersucker. It's more of an Eastern South, South, Southern American thing. I
0: don't know that I ever saw yeah. it. Yeah.
1: So just... people had entire seersucker suits yeah. and those you should probably put away after Labor Day
0: <laughs> or just in general <laughs> forever. Okay. Labor Day also usually, so as you said, Tara, you know, we don't, we don't stop for nothing at Center College, um, including Labor Day and other holidays. Other people uh, do, do observe. So it tends to kind of mark for us the beginning of week two <laughs> quite often, um sometimes i you know I think, yeah, always marks the beginning of week two, which means obviously we come to the end of week one.
1: We survived,
0: we did, we got there how How was your week one?
1: You know it was really great. I'm really excited about the energy on campus. I don't know if you've experienced that
0: no I've had yeah, I've had a great week. I was joking today. I teach in the eight a m class. I do have two or three young men that definitely seem less alert now than they were on monday it's (laughs) amazing
1: how quickly that happens
0: yeah the enormity of the 8 a.m start has hit them really hard (laughs) but i will say in their defense they are doing their best to at least look like they're paying attention which sometimes is half the battle (laughs) um but you know but those young guys aside i'm yeah my classes are uh students are up for it and they seem energized and they're an absolute pleasure to talk to you already. It's been a really easy start to things, which is great.
1: Yeah, we start we start our week um, on Sunday night of uh, the first week of school with our opening convocation, and I thought I could tell even then that the student attitude <laughs> was going to be pretty great. They they seemed enthusiastic. I'm not really sure about what, but they seemed enthusiastic. Uh, <laughs> but I, I'm trying something new in my survey survey course. When I say survey course, I mean um, America from the beginning of America, so 1492-ish, to 1865. And I'm trying something new. We go to different places. Um, So we started off this week, we went to Roanoke. And so we kind of try and immerse ourselves in the history and the culture of the place. And then on Fridays, we kind of look at how people after the fact have looked at this. So what have Americans, why are Americans so interested in Roanoke? Uh, And so today we kind of tackled that question and also, you know, why they're not as interested in Jamestown. Mm-hmm. and it was it was really fun the students were really engaged interesting
0: I'm going to be a jerk and go off script here a little bit because we weren't planning to do this so I'm intrigued by this idea we've talked about it before but this idea of you kind of going to different places in the syllabus because I was talking to students this morning in my world history class and so we had a reading on Wednesday that was basically the impossibility of writing world history <laughs> which is the prologue to a, <laughs> to a book on world history which is the kind of thing historians do all the time this is impossible read the following 1200 pages um We do that all the time. And I was kind of saying to them, you know, it's actually very, the act of creating a syllabus is really tricky. And I actually used a slightly more limited example in my 20th century China class. I would love to do kind of a thematic class, but I don't like the idea of jumping back and forth or kind of doing like 1870 through 1989 and then going back and doing it again which is actually arguably a more feasible way. Mm-hmm. So have you kind of fit your places into some kind of a chronology or have you gone full on, we're just going to jump around? Like, how, do you, how are you doing it?
1: It is absolutely fitted to chronology because I face mm-hmm. the same problem. Right. As fun as it would be to kind of do America to 1865 over and over and over in all these different places. Right. It'd be like Groundhog's Day gone totally wrong. I know. Um, and the students would hate me. It, we couldn't do it.
0: I know. I mean, I keep having... I'm tempted to do something like that. So, for example, in my kind of heart of hearts or the heart of the guy who got the Ph.D. and somehow saw it through, let's do this purely thematic thing and chronology, chronology, you know, be thrown out the window. Who cares? Um, And that would be insane and would be the cruelest thing you could possibly do to an undergraduate ever, you know, or someone who doesn't already have a Ph.D. And then I think, well, I could do that repeated thing, like you said, the Groundhog Day thing. And I, I'm actually I'm trying to remember I've done something similar to it, and it, it didn't work out as well as I hoped because it turns out I, I'm thinking to myself, oh, and by the third time we get back to 1965, they're gonna have such this this wonderful basis, and in truth, they're just they're dog tired of going to 1965. <laughs> it doesn't work.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I spend the first part of my I mean the first class of the survey trying to assure them that I'm not going to make them memorize names and dates that that's Mm, that's that is not my major purpose in life i mean as i say come on you need to know what happened in america in 1776 that's important right but it's not necessarily as important that you know every single date because then Mm -hmm. we don't have time to get to the interesting stuff so if i spend all that time telling them the dates don't matter and then also destroy (laughs) the chronology for them that there's too much yeah they can't do it so, I do pick my my places very specifically, so we started in Roanoke because well, that history doesn't last very long it's... right <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then next week we're going to Boston, and while there's lots of history in Boston, the most important things for my class to cover mm-hmm. happen in the colonial period so so it makes yeah. sense to do
0: i think it's I'm really happy that for you that it worked out that way that it kind of clicked together because it is a cool idea, and in my experience as well, I think anything you can give them that gives some sense of like actual design to the syllabus, they do appreciate it, you know? I mean, I think you can do it in a very goofy, like in a, there's there's good goofy ways and bad goofy ways. And I think the bad goofy way is kind of the way that would appeal to other people I went to grad school with, not specific people. I'm talking about these amorphous people who have PhDs, you know, that we get together, we'll talk about history in a certain way. There are ways I could structure it that would appeal to us that, you know, ordinary human beings would be repulsed by. Um, but any kind of an attempt to structure, for example, moving place to place, in my experience, students really do respond to it. And there's almost a sense of and it really helps because you can tell them you you worked on the syllabus. You can tell them you really think hard about how to match things together. But if you can show them that you thought about that hard, like they, they, they do respond to it. you know.
1: I think they also they tend to get bogged down by the slog through history Mm, so it might sound exciting at first that you're gonna you know start at the beginning of time and and go Mm -hmm. to the end right but but somewhere in the middle of time they get tired and they lose their purpose so
0: yeah and that will that will align with losing their purpose just from being really tired after 10 weeks of a semester or what what have you you know and in places that have quarter schedules that third quarter that spring quarter Mm -hmm. spring summer thing yeah that's You lose people. You lose people along the way, you stragglers. Speaking of your course in early American history.
1: (laughs) So did anything exciting happen in your classes this week?
0: I don't know about exciting. You know, we were joking about this before the podcast that um, I do like to talk. And so this continuing tension of um, am I talking (laughs) at my students more than talking with them? And I've done a lot of talking this week, but there's been a few kind of ways of like laying the ground for stuff. I did change my modern China a little bit to try and condense the imperialist stuff. Mm -hmm. Because in a modern class, you want them. We're going to talk a lot about the 20th century and different government modes. And so I'm like, I want to tell them this is a system that was replaced and you could easily do a whole semester on this system. But here we are. We have an hour. Let's go. But it's gone well and they've been great. And and even where I've been worried, I've been talking too much. As soon as I've given them a chance to jump in, they've been jumping in. So again, going back to your point, Tara, about the energy on campus, which is all over, which I'm very happy about. I hope we're not the only ones benefiting from this. Um, it's really kind of, it just makes the job easier, you know, and I'm teaching an 8am and a 9.10 as well. And they're great. You know, they're really they're really trying and that just makes it easier, especially in the world history class. I go in and and I, I get to say things like what is world history you know and, and just kind of and they're sitting there looking at me saying you know well, you're supposed to tell us it's like aha,
1: I that's one of the interesting tensions because I was joking with another of our colleagues um, earlier this week about how some small part of you me wanted to be a teacher just so I got to talk the entire right. class period <laughs> right so I totally have the potential to talk the entire class period but that mm-hmm. is certainly not the way I want my classes to run. Um, there is also an expectation on the student side that that is what's going to happen.
0: Right. (laughs) Um,
1: That I'm going to deliver that knowledge straight into their brains.
0: And some students want it and some students don't. Mm -hmm. It's always complex. So, so yeah, so it's, it's been a good week in that regard. Now I know actually, I, I feel these tensions and I worry about them a little bit and I kind of, I try and tweak things, but you definitely think a little bit more, I'm going to use a word that is overused in academia. You think about it a bit more intentionally than I do. Tara, um, I'm being outrageous using that word, but you do. But in all seriousness, you you kind of you do think a little bit about your opening day in particular. And we talked about this a little bit last week in the first podcast in a a, a slightly different way that I do. Um, and so you're kind of in a better place. I want to give you a chance to talk about that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. To talk about how you kind of approach that and how you implement it. It's well, interesting. I,
1: I have the luxury to do that as an American historian because mm-hmm. I teach it at American college. And so most of my students come in with a base of knowledge already. And part of my job then is to unsettle that base of knowledge. Mm-hmm. I need them uh, to stop thinking like high school students in AP U.S. history and Mm -hmm. I have to get them to start thinking critically about why they've been told what they've been told. So this year I started um, my survey class with a timeline exercise where I had them get into pairs and I had them try and put the major events in American history on a timeline. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was a lot of fun. They giggled pretty hard at their inability to remember any (laughs) dates. Um, and, And they learned a lot. I mean, it was really obvious they get all of the wars right minus the war right. of 1812 <laughs> right they 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 always forget the war of 1812 um but right they they understand all of a sudden that they're marking their history based on wars based mm-hmm. on presidents mm-hmm. um based on kind of you know what what is often called great man theory of history right. so it's kind of, it's a nice very Um, easy way to get them started in American Mm. history. But I can imagine that would be harder to do in something like world history or Chinese history where they don't come in with the same level of knowledge.
0: It really depends. I, I think that there's definitely a similarity kind of on the method side, like you're talking about, about trying to get to this idea of like, so why are things happening? So I had a chat with them on Wednesday and I mentioned great man history. And I talked about history. The history field has really moved on a lot since then. And the reading I had given them is a little bit over the top. But, you know, talking about, he, you know, writing about socialism in America, not Russia, in a history of the the second thousand years after the birth of Christ, um, discussing the decline of the Ottoman Empire by talking about the emperor's private collection of zoo animals. Or so. and I, it's, it's actually we talk about it at the end of the podcast. It's a very good book. Um, And it's very, it's kind of very 90s in many ways. We had this big discussion on Wednesday about that and history coming from different sources. And then today we talked about how Urban II launched the First Crusade single-handedly. So, you know, you're kind of immediately doubling back uh, because these things actually happen. Uh, But it depends. Our colleague, Dr. Bodwin, Steve Bodwin, who is teaching world history this semester, he drew an imaginary line down the middle of the room, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And he had them jump on either side and he had like, you know, who likes essays, who likes presentations, and then Halloween or Christmas, you know, and all these different (laughs) ways to do it. So you can a hundred percent do it.
1: Absolutely. Um, (laughs) I did ask my students what emoji they would be uh, if they had to (laughs) pick one.
0: (laughs) That's really good.
1: It was especially good because they know all of the emojis. like.
0: I know three emojis, I think. And one of them is the poop emoji emoji.
1: I was very proud that none of them said that they would be the poop emoji. (laughs) Society is advancing.
0: But it's an interesting point then because, you know, I'm I'm teaching world history and world history is tough because you're you're flinging from kind of point to point. But I just had a student in my office uh, before we started recording who has discovered he's in love with the Crusades. And I'm sitting there going, they're amazing. I mean, they're grisly and horrifying and terrible, but they're also really interesting. And so you kind of get these kind of flip sides of it. You also get different audiences, right? Different constituencies. American students, I'm sure, are going into your class. Part of the reason you're unsettling them is because I guess they have a set of expectations. This is what an American history class is going to be. I get them in Chinese history and in world history, but definitely in Chinese history, Japanese history and the like. And they're just not only are they kind of blank pages, as it were, but like, they're aware of that. They might like that. They might be looking forward to learning something quote unquote, completely new. So I think that gives different advantages and different challenges to the American history.
1: Yeah. And I've heard students say that about the world history, either with you or with some of our other colleagues and and Mm -hmm. say, you know, there are just so many things that they know that I've never heard, you know, I've never heard about before. And I think that's, Certainly, one of the advantages of a history program is mm-hmm. that you get to both be unsettled about your own history and to learn about other people's history and to find the overlap. I thought it was mm-hmm. really interesting that both of us have talked this week about Prester John in our survey class. I know That's that was amazing. Funny.
0: Prester John, the uh, medieval, in medieval times, the quasi-mythical—well, entirely mythical actually—but <laughs> uh, this Christian king who lived somewhere beyond the realm of Christendom. And I was talking about him today and I was talking about this notion of a Christian West. And I actually talked about myself. So I, what I did was I gave him a quick bio and said, I was raised Catholic. My grandfather, and I'm still Catholic. My grandfather said the rosary every night. He went to mass every day. I was raised in this very, very conservative Catholic home. What perceptions do you guys think I had about Christianity and European identity or Irish identity for that matter? And the short answer is, they're the same thing, yeah. right? And so Prester John was an inter- in my class was an interesting way to say, why are they doing this? Why do they care if there's this alleged Christian king living somewhere east of the Muslims, and, which is generally where he was, right?
1: Yeah. And for yeah. your for your class, what's the answer to that? Or what's one of the answers to that?
0: One of the answers to that, I basically said there's, there's an extent to which it's almost self-validating that, you know, because our religion is based on this concept of salvation. And there's obviously you know, in the medieval period, there's not an awful lot of accepting other faiths as being valid. And so there's this sense, it's kind of self-validating of, well, there's Christians out there. If you look at the travels of Marco Polo and read that book, like he's constantly, every chapter starts off by listing off all the religious groups he's come across in that part of the world. And he's always mentioning a couple of these different supposed, you know, Christian communities that had been in Rome and were basically defeated by the Nicene Christians. But they're still over here, you know. They totally, (laughs) almost certainly weren't. Um, so I kind of mentioned that. And then secondly, I said also to be really get down to the nitty gritty of it. Um, there's this potential ally on yeah. the other side of these large and scary Muslim empires.
1: Yeah. And that's sort of where I start the discussion. Mm-hmm. I mean, Prester John's pretty far away from the Americas after 1492 uh, because right. they... they Prester John supposedly lived in you know India or right. Ethiopia or right. you know someplace in that <laughs> vicinity <laughs> yeah but what's really interesting is I mean this is sort of one of the impulses for exploration or it's the way that they couch exploration right maybe we're gonna find Prester John maybe you know maybe we can find this right. person to defeat help us defeat the Muslims and then as they learn more about the Atlantic world all of a sudden that, disappears. No one ever tries to claim that no. Prester John is hanging out in the Americas. Right. Um, it presents a whole different set of, of issues for Europe to deal with.
0: In fact, in the Americas, you start having things like the Fountain of Youth, yes. right? And El Dorado. And so there's yeah. this whole different set yeah. of almost, today we might call them aspirational ideals. You know, <laughs> Today, the aspirational ideal is to, I guess, have your own mega company that, you know, prints money basically. <laughs> Whereas... When conquering the Americas, it's the fountain of youth, you know. The
1: fountain of of youth and all the gold that you could ever want.
0: I do often, this will come up in later podcasts, I'm sure, when we get on to the new world and world history, I do show them the intro to a French cartoon, City of Gold. And it's this like young kind of spanish like white animated little boy and then two indigenous kids a boy and a girl and the girl is like supposed to be incan or something like that and the boy is more dark-skinned and everything and it's just you can look it up on youtube but it's more or less exactly what you're imagining a french cartoon depicting three children in the new world looks like for the 1980s
1: i can see no problems nothing could possibly go wrong no
0: nothing at all no
1: <laughs> Alright, so we're hoping as we continue in our podcasting adventure to, to start talking a little bit about some more current events, and how uh, historians can help us understand them. And so we're ready to start that here this week. And so I was just hoping that John could talk to us a little bit about North Korea and um, Korean history in general, so to help us maybe better understand a lot of the headlines that we're reading about North Korea and missiles and America's response.
0: Right, so this is something that, as Tara says, we have been talking about from the very beginning of the platform as it were. There is a short blog post I put up on Friday, September the 1st, that talks a little bit about here are some things I think an historian can can kind of deliver in terms of context. And the three things I focused on were, for one thing, the Korean War, which is something that a lot of Americans, for obvious reasons, are re- reasonably familiar with, obviously, because Amer- a lot of Americans gave their lives in the Korean War, never technically ended, right? Um, this is a key point, and our mistress was signed. And this really affects relations between Korean people it has, I think, a less direct effect on the American role in that in that area, um, but it definitely affects how Koreans interact with each other because we always talk about Koreans. I, and I think this is an understandable oversight Almost like French people and Belgian people, right? Like, oh, they're similar to each other, but they're two completely distinct countries.
1: They both like bread.
0: Yeah. You know, you know, it's a, the Koreans, yes, they both speak Korean, but it, it, it's funny because after World War II, especially with the kind of regime that sadly was installed in North Korea, there are very prominent cultural differences between the two places today, um, whether that's down to gender roles, the way they speak the language. Um, And of course, your difference in accents and stuff isn't unique to Korea, but even the kind of language they're going to use. And of course, state propaganda in the north, um, a supposed attempt to create a Stalinist type regime in the north versus the more capitalist democratic south. Although, again, we make assumptions because Korea, South Korea doesn't truly become democratic in a way that we would kind of could say with a straight face until really the 1980s or so. Um, it's really the movement when the Seoul Olympics are confirmed for 88, that helps kickstart a lot of student protests that remove some issues that were there with authoritarianism in South Korea. The second thing I point out is the 38th parallel, which very famously is the divided into two countries, uh, was something that was scribbled together by Dean Rusk, who was who later became Secretary of State of the United States, and the amazingly named Charles H. Bonesteel III, <laughs> I think he is my favorite name in 20th century history. And they were sent into a room the night of August 10th and 45 and said, you guys figure out where this border is going to be because the Soviets are coming. You've got to figure this out. And they just, they literally picked the 38th parallel and saying, right, well, it's north of the capital and we want the capital to be on the American side. And they actually gave themselves a bit of a buffer anticipating the Soviets come back and go, that's too far north and push it south. And the Soviets didn't. And so the Americans said, okay, we'll go with that. And so... At the moment, for example, present American policy versus North Korea is somewhat unsettling in its apparent lack of structure, and that isn't necessarily brand new either, frankly. And then thirdly, finally, there is actually precedent, and quite recent precedent, for discussions and conversations and negotiations possibly resolving these issues. Um, Most famously, in 1998, Kim Dae-jung, who was the incoming South Korean president at that time, made it very clear, He, he said in his inauguration speech, he made it really clear I want to reach out to the North. I want us to to reconcile. I want us to, to look forward to a path together. He met and shook hands with Kim Jong-il in 2000, which was this really big deal because that had never happened. The leader of the two Koreas had never shook hands like that. And they committed to an on-paper agreement that both sides were agreeing to a kind of a schedule for reunification, which was something that nobody was super, nobody was like super amped about moving that past the on-paper phase. <laughs> But it was an important concession to make publicly. And then the South Koreans started sending a lot of, a lot of aid north. And there was a lot of economic cooperation between the two. And that was the Sunshine Policy. So now, although I sometimes think they're a little optimistic, a lot of the more intelligent, especially in the West, um, Korea commentators point to the Sunshine Policy and argue, listen, we don't have to just threaten to blow them to Kingdom Come. There are other ways out of this. And that that's frankly a tricky one. But th- those are all the ways you kind of contextualize it. Two things added to that that weren't actually in the blog post is that not only, of course, do the two peoples of North Korea and South Korea share this history and they celebrate it and they're proud to be Korean, but they have this like immediate context from 1910 to 1945 of Korea being a Japanese colony. So funnily enough, one of the things they have in common, although the North Koreans are much more aggressive about it, is that they don't have and they don't have a great relationship with Japan. South Korea and Japan are allies. But it's kind of an interesting legacy of the Cold War as much as anything. And then secondly, I didn't talk about it too much, but another legacy of the Cold War is American involvement in that area. And so you have people in the U.S. who demand to know what the United States will do. But it's not just Americans asking that. There are people across Asia look to the U.S. And it's very complicated. It's not as one-dimensional as some people might think. For example, many South Koreans are frustrated at the American military presence in South Korea. But many South Koreans would be very angry if America just left you know, that's what you get for being a global power to a certain extent. So th- that, those are all, I know that's kind of an awful lot to cover, but those are kind of the historical precedents. And it all kind of adds up to what's happening now is very scary, I think, understandably, but it's not actually new. A lot of this rhetoric has been around for a long time. And the North Koreans were never shy about wanting to fire these missiles. It's just now they seem to be firing more of them and, and the missiles are going farther. Great.
1: That That's... A,
0: it's a lot. I'm sorry. Lot. No,
1: it's a great... <laughs> a lot to process, but it's really interesting information. So, and I mean, I knew that it was a war that technically hasn't ended. Mm-hmm. So, and I also know that this, that South Korea is where we have one of our largest military, United mm-hmm. States largest military presence. Right. And so you're telling me that that's because of those two things, right? That we have yeah. this large military presence because this war technically. Largely,
0: that. yeah. I mean, so you know, the Korean War was kind of a bit of a mess. Like technically, it was a police action, right? On on the American side, so mm-hmm. there were all these all these little kind of fig leaves were putting on it. But ultimately, it was a, it was a Cold War proxy conflict, right? So the American presence there was a Cold War necessity. Back when people thought it was a, especially in the years immediately following the Korean War, why wouldn't he try again? Like, why wouldn't you? In the same way that. The Europeans were justifiably concerned that the Russians would go to heck with it, and we're just going to we're going to come west. Like these were, it's funny when we talk to our students, right? Because they weren't alive for any of this, and it's and we we were very young when it happened. I'm I'm proud to say, I'm very happy to say, um, but these are like real threats people were facing, right? And whereas in the Philippines, the other president came in the Philippines in the 1990s, and they closed down Clark Air Force Base, which was this huge base in the Philippines, mm-hmm. and that's been reduced, although there are still um, American presences there. Korea has kind of continued. And it's tough because the same thing is true with American military installations in Japan. How does America extricate itself? It just isn't that simple, even if it seems simple. Because if you read the news and you'll see Koreans and South Koreans protesting the military presence, and we do this a lot, and Americans aren't the only ones who do this, that doesn't mean that all Koreans feel that way. (laughs) It means that those Koreans protesting feel that way and that people have complex feelings about it as well.
1: Right. And then what I also hear you saying, and I think is important since this is a podcast about history, mm-hmm. is that North and South Korea now have their own interesting history with each other. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. um, Americans kind of like to make every all world events about us in some yeah. ways. Yeah. And that what I'm hearing is that we also have to kind of look at what North Korea does as a mm-hmm. reflection of, of what South Korea is doing, what Japan is doing, mm-hmm. what China is doing. Is saying or not saying, right, and exactly. we have to sort of understand those all of those histories as well.
0: Right, exactly, and it's very difficult to do. Um, <laughs> and, I th- and I commend you for <laughs> what you've done. I, I think it's very, I think it's entirely understandable that Americans are observing this from an American point of view because <laughs> they're American. Uh, you know, British people do the same thing; Irish people do the same thing. It's very challenging to open that up. I think that you can break it down a little bit more easily into there are long-standing, very complex relationships between all those countries you just mentioned. But there's no question that World War Two leaves a very, very long shadow over the area. I mean, many of the horrendous things the Japanese military did in World War II to this day again I think entirely legitimately have a massive influence over their relations with their neighbors the phenomenon of comfort women for those who might not be aware where women were taken up from Japanese colonies and other territories and were basically put in special installations where they performed sexual favors for Japanese political officers military officers rather most of those women were Korean or at least there was a, a plurality of those women were Korean and so that It's very upsetting for Korean people, obviously. Um, It's an interesting kind of thing they almost have in common. There's also the sense that we think of North Korea as this completely renegade, crazy state. But Kim Il-sung, the grandfather of the current dictator, he fought against the Japanese in Manchuria. Uh, That's where he met Chinese communists. That kind of helped to shape North Korean communism. And in a world only 40 years ago where communism... Many people argued it wasn't a valid system, but it was a system that was being employed, at least. That seemed like a more valid argument for North Korea to be a communist system. And in fact, in the decade following the Korean War, the North Korean economy was doing better than the South Korean economy. It's actually later, in the late 60s and early 70s, when South Korea becomes a so-called tiger economy, that you start to see that shift. And then, unfortunately, in North Korea, very serious famines begin to start and... The kind of the kleptocracy of the North Korean regime takes over, but that's another thing we can do as historians. So you, how can we segment this? And I think there's the sure there's a the long-standing history. There's the legacy of World War II, and then there's the reality of a, of a post-war experience too.
1: Well, this is great. I think this is really helpful for people like me whose knowledge of East Asian history is fairly rudimentary. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that's putting it nicely, um, but I think it's very useful. For me, the next time I see, especially the sensationalized headlines, to take mm. a step back and and to ground myself a little bit in the past, it, it, I think it is very helpful um, to to understand those headlines better.
0: Yeah, I will say North Korea is very tricky because the rhetoric on their side is really extraordinary. Like all this lakes of fire stuff, we will we will melt the United States, we will defeat them. Like this stuff happens, and it happens for kind of very specific domestic North Korean reasons, but also. What surprised me in the last few months this awful story about the student otto Warmbier, uh, who was returned home in a coma having been arrested on you know outrageously trumped up charges a couple of years ago in north korea i'm a little surprised that that didn't kind of engender more of almost like a visceral reaction i'm glad that a war wasn't started over that um, i was a little surprised that there wasn't something more that didn't bring us closer to the brink but if you go back to the 70s and 80s Um, there were literally North Korean special forces going up onto beaches in Japan and taking people away and brainwashing them and like making them believe. Yeah, really. Um, This is something that was in Japanese newspapers for years and it was always kind of assumed to probably be trumped up and we found out like 15 years ago, no, it was actually happening. There were like Japanese couples on the beach being dragged away by these... It's North Korean frogmen, and some of them, many of them, were then were brainwashed and became these, you know. And this, there's there's numerous examples of this of foreigners in North Korea becoming the ultimate spokespeople for the, for the regime. Tara looks very shocked right now, but this happened, and that's what makes North Korea really difficult because some of the stuff is amazing. It's it's really sensational, but any argument, any statement that a nuclear attack on an American city is imminent is is sensational. they don't have the technology for that yet um, and it but it's very tough to parse because they're saying they want to they're saying they will
1: so what i hear is not only do we need to understand history and have uh that ability to to understand some of the the domestic and more local international reasons for doing things. Mm. But we also need to be paying attention to language and why language matters and how it matters in different co- countries and cultures. Right,
0: exactly. And that's the key then when we get to our history classes to bring it back. I mean, that that's the trick, isn't it, really? You know, you kind of get to these, and ideally a history major will, you know, she'll be sitting in your in your classroom and you make a statement like that, right, about this topic she knows nothing about. And she's like, okay, I actually have a little bit of a toolbox I can I can you I can adapt to this. I can figure this out. I can go up after the class and I can ask Dr. Harney to, to give me a book to go and get me started. Yeah, that's the ideal.
1: Yes, that know. is the ideal.
0: And it's also riveting. And it's funny you say, you know, one thing that historians are very bad at. Well, I'm very bad at it. And I certainly know historians who are bad at, bad at this. I forget that other people don't know these things. There's this <laughs> immediate trivialization of all your knowledge. Like you spend years of your life. Learning all these details and like learning languages, you know, in order to make this whole system work, and then on some subconscious level, you're like, well, everybody knows this, and it's just not even remotely true, you know.
1: I had a what we a non traditional student when I was at uh, when I was teaching at the University of South Carolina, who once said, you have to remember that you have forgotten more information about um, early American history than I've ever known, and it was. I I was a young graduate student Mm -hmm. and so it didn't really feel true at the time, Mm -hmm. Um, but it is one of those things I try to keep in mind um, when I'm talking to students, when I'm talking to people in the public about historical Mm -hmm. things. Um, And yes, my face when you talked about brainwashed (laughs) Japanese, it it reflected a a not sophisticated knowledge. Right. But thank you.
0: But also that's the crazy thing about history is you're always looking for these rational events and then, but you know, crazy things happen to use technical terms. And speaking of this issue of recognizing what you yourself know, that is definitely a topic for a future cast, which is the issue of overprepping, um, <laughs> yes. which is a huge problem, which in short, for those of you listening to this episode, means if you ever sat in a college class where the professor came in and just, you know, threw information at you and just left and you didn't know even where to start, they probably overprepped.
1: I and I've it, done it. I call it word vomit, but word yes. Word
0: vomit, that's actually better. <laughs> So to wrap up then, another kind of little segment, I suppose we wanted to start, was kind of share what we've been reading or watching or what have you, ideally with a history bent, but not necessarily. It being the first week of classes, this might be a short segment this week, (laughs) but we'll try. Tara, have you been watching or reading or anything else, you know, Uh, listening to anything? This also
1: has to be filtered through the lens that between us, we have four small children. That's right. And so... Our wants and our realities are different.
0: <laughs> yeah. There might be a lot of, well, there's this thing I'd like to read and I'm going to talk about it, which actually is mine. <laughs> I'm going to do it in a minute.
1: Um, so the thing we're watching is not remotely history related. We've been watching episodes of Cheers.
0: It could be. <laughs> Urban history, pop culture.
1: Uh, It is, however, enormously great If you just need a a giant palate cleanser Mm. But I have been reading In preparation for my Colonial American class We're going to start reading a book called The Many Captivities of Esther Wheelwright Um, And this is a story of a puritan new england girl who is taken captive by mohawks by by native iroquois who is then taken into french canada and and in the end she becomes the mother abbess of a catholic nunnery in french canada and so it's this really
0: (laughs) i just made an odd facial expression my turn to look bewildered it, it that's is a heck of a story it's
1: a heck of a story and it's a great way to talk about kind of captivity narratives in new england and and to turn mm. some of these things we think we know about about new england on its head and it, it's a good read so i, I suggest I, I like it, it
0: sounds great yeah. i i'm similar i gave my students just the prologue like 12 pages or so at the beginning of a book called millennium that i mentioned earlier in the podcast by a man named felix fernandez armesto uh, he's a Brit- he's a british person um, who he teaches here in the u.s actually and he writes all the popular histories and millennium 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 was published back in 95 and it was an attempt, as I alluded to earlier, to write like a truly global history. And it's very, I read it when I was in college, actually. And, you know, his prologue talks about the things he's not going to cover. So he has a sentence in the prologue. This is the only mention of Frederick the Great, which (laughs) makes me laugh. And I always wonder what percentage of his readers actually laugh at this (laughs) goofy joke he made. And there's this alternate, alternate universe I live in where I have time to read things and in that alternate universe, John is two or three chapters into millennium. It's a very long book, but I'd love to give it a go. And and it, certainly if people are listening and are interested, it's a really interesting book, you know, because I think there's different kinds of people who like to read different kinds of history books in their free time. Mm-hmm. And there are there is a type of person who will sit down with a Churchill biography or a Hitler bio or what have you. And they'll just, they'll love that. That's three hours a night, you know, for a week or two or something like that. And other people aren't like that. I will warn people, your mileage will vary with Millennium. (laughs) He genuinely does try and explain the fall of the Ottoman Empire by describing the private zoo of one of the rulers. If that sounds like fun to you, it is 100% worth looking up. And if it doesn't, well, I just told you all about Millennium. So there you go.
1: (laughs) I think it is unsurprising that I think that sounds fascinating.
0: (laughs) It's a very interesting book. (laughs) Thanks for being here, Tara.
1: And thanks for being here, John. I appreciate especially you educating me today.
0: (laughs) And thanks everyone for listening. We have mentioned today a couple of blog posts on centertrail.com, C-E-N-T-R-E. At some point in my life, I'll be able to stop spelling that word out. (laughs) Please do give it a look if you haven't already. And uh, thanks for coming back for episode two. We'll see you again next week.
1: Yeah, thanks.